Parvez Hoodboy needs little introduction to those who follow South Asia. Born and raised in Karachi, he studied at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and is an award-winning nuclear physicist based in Lahore. Hoodboy is well known for his incisive writings and activism on issues of freedom of speech and secularism. In this podcast, he spoke to our editor Anuhita Majunga about the right-wing politics of the Imran Khan government, religion and nationalism in India and Pakistan, and the fate of the South Asian identity. Parvez Hoodboy, thank you for joining us for the Himal South Asian podcast. You have a wide range of interests and today we are going to be focusing on one of the issues that has concerned you deeply, the fate of the South Asian identity. You said earlier that Pakistan is undergoing Arabization, Bangladesh is Islamizing and India is far along the RSS way. In this interview today we will try and examine some of the causes. Can we start with your home country, Pakistan? The newly elected Prime Minister Imran Khan's politics has always been a cause of discomfort, especially within Western capitals, with his political agenda being viewed as a regressive turn towards the conservative interpretation of Islam and support for its violent proponents. Is that characterization justified? And since he came to power earlier this year, do you think that has been borne out by his actions? I don't know about Western capitals because Imran Khan has been welcomed in many countries of the West um, as somebody who has had close relations with the royalty in Britain and uh, with the princes and uh, queens and um, so forth in, in Europe. But the worry here in Pakistan or with people like me is that he is committed to a way of thinking which uh, can only lead us backwards. So in the last uh, two months or so, he has been particularly harping on creating the state of Medina in Pakistan. Now, the state of Medina, um, if it existed, that is, um, was uh, from 1400 years ago, founded by the Prophet Muhammad, as a result of infighting between Arab tribes. And there was a sort of agreement called the Agreement of Medina, misak medina it's called, according to which um, it, was, um, it was decided that so much blood money would be paid and so forth. Now, there wasn't really an administrative structure to that state. It was um, a happy... Uh, a relatively happy period of coexistence between warring tribes. But really to bring that into the 21st century and to say that that is the goal of Pakistan, to me certainly is very worrying. Although I do say that um, a lot of people here in Pakistan do welcome that because it is a revival of the faith. After all, everything that is good has happened in history. And so when people start looking backwards, when they see that the golden age existed at some distant time back in the past, and they want to go towards it, well, I can understand the reasons for that. I can understand that because today's world is so complicated. It's nasty. There's brutality. There's injustice. There's uh, a huge difference between classes. And so you want to 
idealize something way back in the past. Now, unfortunately, that that distant ideal probably didn't exist. In fact, we know it didn't exist because, well, let's think of how it was during the times of of uh, of 7th century Arabia. It was a pretty harsh life. Most kids used to die upon childbirth. The population was limited by, by natural factors, by food, by water, by disease. And now that's uh, not true anymore. Let's also look at the fact that the economy of those days depended upon, well, trade as well as raiding caravans. And you can't make a state which is in 7th century Arabia on raiding caravans, can you? And so I am worried and a lot of people like me are worried. And even some of those who welcome Imran Khan are worried, but they don't dare to express their worry publicly because, um, you know, he it's not particularly him, but rather the Islamic thought has pervaded much of Pakistan society. And in fact, uh, in Muslim countries, I'd say that would apply to Bangladesh as much and to Indian Muslims. And I don't know how many Muslims there are in Nepal, but uh, well, pretty much all of South Asia. That sort of yearning for the past and some mythological uh, entity that that existed is attractive to people. Uh, I think it's not limited to Islam, of course. I mean, we see that also within the Hindu right in India, and I think we can discuss this a little bit later. And I'd also like to go into what you've talked about, uh, the injustice and brutality, which is uh, leaving people yearning for the past. But just another question on Imran Khan and his politics. Uh, we've familiar with aspects of his rhetoric which have been in play not just uh, since he became prime minister but of course earlier uh, how do you think he plans to establish a medina like uh, state uh, is this just rhetoric which appeals to his supporters or do you actually see practical elements which will play out within Pakistan, whether it's by commission or omission. And by that, I mean, will he take steps to achieve this or will he turn a blind eye to the extremist right? What are your actual fears? Well, it is certainly impossible that he should be able to create a 7th century entity in 21st century Pakistan. So it's out of the question that we would have an economy like that. Um, certainly, there is no way that you can bring back slavery to Pakistan today. That would be absurd. You could not, for example, also say that Christians and Hindus and um, Parsis living in Pakistan would have to pay jizya, the tax which non-Muslims have to pay in a Muslim state. That's completely out of the question. Our concepts of human rights have progressed immensely over the last, uh, at least over the last uh, uh, five centuries or so. So that's out of the question. But 
what Imran Khan does do and will continue to do is to be soft on the ultra right in Pakistan and upon the militants. Now, before he became prime minister, he was known as Taliban Khan for the simple reason that every Taliban atrocity that would be committed by the Pakistani Taliban, Tehrike Taliban Pakistan, TTP as it's called, would be somehow rationalized by him. He would say, oh, but uh, look, isn't it but natural that the Americans have invaded Afghanistan, they are a superpower, they have desecrated our country, destroyed Afghanistan, etc. And so the Taliban are perfectly right and correct in, in, uh, in, fighting, in, in fighting back. Now, I happen to have a personal altercation with him on this very matter on television, and perhaps you can Google that. The anchor had asked him, he said, uh, uh, Imran Khan said, can you tell us what's going on in Swat? Why is there so much bloodletting? And this is precisely the reply that he gave. He said, oh, the Americans are doing such terrible things, etc., etc. And uh, at this point, um, the anchor asked me and I said, frankly, I can't understand it because if the Taliban want to fight the Americans, let them go to Afghanistan. Why are they killing our people, blowing up our schools, killing our policemen, etc. And so Imran Khan got very, very angry at me and he accused me of being an American agent. So that's in the past. So the, I, I'm talking of 2008. Now, fast forward to 10 years later. And you know that uh, when this Christian woman accused of blasphemy. Her yeah, name was, the Asya baby case, which was Asya perhaps baby. the first test case, so to speak, uh, after he became prime minister. Absolutely. Now, the Supreme Court finally picked up the courage and released her from these absurd charges. And uh, so she was then released. And there was this right wing agitation by 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 extremists. And Imran Khan backed down. He instead of and, and it's really amazing because those right wing extremists asked for the Supreme Court justice to be assassinated. They asked for the Pakistan army's chief to be killed by his own men. They asked for mutiny and they called Imran Khan a Yahudi bacha, Jewish child. And yet the government, the military and in particular Imran Khan backed away. Now that was such a shameful retreat that pretty much the whole of Pakistan was appalled. And so that's the way in which he is soft towards the ultra right. But it'll go beyond that. We will see its manifestations in many different areas. As we were uh, saying earlier, it's not just Pakistan. Uh, right across the border in India, we are also saying an upsurge of the religious right. We are saying some of the same tendencies you've been describing, going soft on extremists, uh, rationalizing violence. Uh, why do you think this is happening in India? That's certainly not 
against uh, an Islamic uh, or, or Islamization of the population, but it's coming from the Hindu right wing. Yes, you're absolutely right. And it's very saddening for us liberals here in Pakistan, because at one point we did think that India offered a model of secularism, of coexistence between different peoples, a pluralist entity. And we thought, or at least many of us thought, that, uh, okay, there's the RSS and the BJP, and they are an aberration in Indian politics. And so once the BD BJP was voted out of power and Congress came back, everyone breathed a sigh of relief. But as we can now see much more clearly, there is, in fact, a serious revival of the extreme Hindu right wing. Now, the Hindu right wing had always existed. By always, I mean 100 years ago or so. So you had people like uh, Savarkar and Gowalkar and uh, after all, it was the RSS which murdered Mahatma Gandhi. But we thought, well, okay, so I come from a generation that uh, first experienced India under Jawaharlal Nehru. And Nehru was outrightly secular. He was, uh, well, not, he, he was even atheistic. And he visualized an India which was uh, completely pluralistic. Okay, now that has subsided. I won't say it's gone out of the window because I do see India uh, inching back slowly, slowly and reacting against the Hindu right. But I think the question that you ask is really a deeper one. Why is it that there is a revivalism of these primitive instincts of peoples uh, practically everywhere? You see this uh, certainly in India now. And you also see this in the United States. You see that the white American worker and the people in the Midwest and states like Missouri, they are supporters of Donald Trump. So this nativism, this retribalization of society is happening globally. And uh, that, I think, is really the question that one should be pondering upon. Because, okay, Pakistan and um, uh, let's say uh, Saudi Arabia, sure, they were in the forefront of this uh, extremely regressive thought that we must look back to the past because that's where all the good is. But uh, you see this also in, in India. You see the worship of, uh, you see cow worship. You see the the idea of uh, a Hindu Rashtra, of Ram Raj. And I, I do think that there is some something very peculiar within us human beings, this uh, yearning for better times and this dislocation with modernity. You see, the world has been changing so terribly fast that uh, individuals have become very insecure. There's a fantastic book written some many years ago, maybe 50 years ago, called Future Shock by Alvin Toffler. And Toffler said, this this uh, this world of ours is now changing at a rate which is deeply unsettling to every human being who's been caught up in this and is shaking our very foundations. 
the way that we live is totally different from the way that our grandparents lived. We've been dislocated from the land. We are alienated from all that is around us. And this is going to cause us deep psychological distress. And so I see psychological distress as being a principal reason for the return to Islam, the return to Hinduism, the return to Judaism. Just look at Israel. And of course, uh, what you see in the kind of nativism that you see in the United States. You mentioned earlier also the discomfort uh, that people have because of economic deprivation, uh, injustice. And uh, in a recent article you talked about, you said that it's easy to see why certain religious uh, slogans appeal to the popular imagination. And uh, you wrote that in a country that is deeply unequal and plagued by huge class asymmetry, People yearn for an unblemished past. Could you talk a little bit about that aspect? Pakistan is hugely unequal. You just, so here I am sitting in Islamabad, watching out of my window, and I see these little kids gathering plastic wrappers and bags and they're, they're rag pickers. And the houses around me are big, and that includes mine as well. Okay, I'm, I I will not say that I am different from others, but it I, I, I see this inequality everywhere. I drive in a car. On the other hand, I see a lot of people simply walking by, walking long distances. Yes, I do try and give a lift to whoever I can, but that's that's just putting a bandaid on a serious serious wound. It doesn't do anything. So our societies, and I mean. Pakistan and India and Bangladesh are built upon inequality, upon class differences. Now, there have been in the past, certainly more in India than in Pakistan, attempts to change this. There was a communist movement. That communist movement failed. It failed, well, because... Okay, uh, for many reasons that that we could go into another time. But certainly these, these extreme inequalities are a prescription for continuing conflict within our societies, within all of South Asia. And at the same time, we need to look at some kind of a model that's worked somewhere in the world. And I do see that humans are capable of living together relatively decently. I see the Scandinavian countries as being examples of that. I also see other countries in Europe, not all of them, but uh, those which have, through struggle, through workers' struggles, through land redistribution, through rule of law, managed to make relatively better societies. And so... Although I'm not hopeful of revolution, and, and in fact, I would not want revolution, given the kind of thoughts, given the kind of ideology our revolutionaries have, I do think that social reformation is absolutely essential for Pakistan and for India and for Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, all of South Asia, Sri Lanka, of course. You mentioned the failure of the communist movement and uh, as you pointed out, uh, the biggest crisis in the region is economic perhaps 
uh, and yet uh, there is a spectacular failure of the left in its various shapes and forms at a time when one would think it needs to mobilize or even has a willing audience for which would enable it to mobilize. Why do you think that is so? I think that the left really needs to rethink its objectives. It cannot live in uh, 18th century Europe anymore. That's the time when, uh, okay, capitalism was just emerging, industrial capitalism. From there came the proletariat and the capitalist classes. And so you could talk about the oppressors and the oppressed, but it isn't simple. It isn't that simple anymore. Now, our societies are much more, um, uh, they, 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 they're much more complex. There are, there is no, they're, they're not two classes anymore. It's uh, horizontally stratified, it's uh, vertically stratified. And so one has to aim towards uh, different ideas of human progress of justice. And so I would say that uh, let's take something like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which applies to everybody. And uh, although it does not uh, specifically address uh, how the economic system of a society ought to be uh, run, or what that economic system should be, yet that forms a basis for progressive movements everywhere. So let's... Uh, fight for the equality of men and women. Let's fight for a minimum wage. Let's fight to end child labor and so on and so forth. So, um, yes, now the question is who should own the means of production? That's not a simple question anymore because, look, you can have um, small home businesses. You can have um, uh, you can have people creating software just sitting in their in their own homes, and uh, therefore the 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 rules, the the kind of social ambiance that existed in the 19th century or the 18th century just doesn't apply anymore. What does remain, however, is the idea of human justice, and justice is assured only when the gap between the rich and the poor is not too large. So where do you think this is going to come from? Uh, who do you think will mobilize around these principles of human justice that you are outlining? Is it going to come from the middle class or do you expect uh, some other form of resistance? Do you see it happening or is it a hope? No, I do see it happening, certainly. Uh, although our societies, I mean, all of South Asia and pretty much all over the world too, Although these have uh, high levels of injustice, they are nowhere comparable to what uh, existed uh, several hundred years ago when you had the absolute authority of the ruler, the king, the emperor, the sultan or whoever. That is no longer acceptable to anyone. We insist upon democracy. Now, what we need to do is to insist that democracy is possible only when there is some measure of, of uh, economic democracy also. And so we need to insist upon progressive taxation. So I don't think 
revolution is what we should be aiming for. What we should be aiming for is progressive taxation. Tax the rich. How is it that this guy Ambani can have this uh, extravagant wedding and that wealth was ultimately extracted from the people? Now, how do you get rid of people like Ambani? Or how do you, okay, I won't say get rid, but how do you how do you temper that kind of excess? And for that, what you need is uh, the kind of taxation system that you have in Scandinavian countries. Sure, let them make money, but let them pay their obligation to society. And so I don't think this is an impossible ideal. I think people are becoming conscious of this. And in spite of the fact that CEOs of various corporations make a filthy amount of money. Yet, if there is consciousness which is aroused within our peoples, then we will go after them. We'll say that pay your tax, pay 70% tax or whatever, as you should. Well, on that hopeful note of increasing consciousness, not just in Pakistan, but throughout the countries of South Asia, we're going to bring this to a close today. But we hope to have you back with us again to discuss many of the issues around South Asia that you are so interested in. Thank you, Parvez Hoodboy, for joining us today. Great. Great.